Today on the Scottso Podcast, we are in our series on the Gospel of John. John writes his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad to see all of you here today. Those of you who are watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. Just a quick announcement that I want to remind you of. Um, because of the growth that's been happening in our church in both services at uh, our 9:15 and 11 o'clock service, we are out of space. We have just about reached 100% capacity in both of those venues. Therefore, we are going to be looking at launching the Crosspoint Center, which will take place on Easter Sunday. Sunday will be our official full launch, but the week before that, which would be April the 10th, we're going to do a soft launch for all of those who are going to be a part of that. We're asking you to pray about that. You're going to get some more information in the days ahead with some, some little sign-in sheets and making some commitments to consider how you can be a part of the Crosspoint Center launch. That is going to be at the 11 o'clock a.m. service, so you're at 915. You might say that doesn't really impact you, but we may need some folks from here to move into that as well so we can provide opportunity to continue to reach folks at this hour. God has been so good to send so many folks our way, and we're looking at continuing to grow again in that area. So please be in prayer about that. Well, next Sunday is a very important time in the life of sports fans. It is what? Super Bowl. It's a Super Bowl Sunday. And most of us have watched the playoffs, which was probably one of the best playoffs for NFL in history. All of the games ended with a field goal, either winning the game or moving them into an overtime situation. And so this Sunday, we're going to watch the Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals face off one another for Super Bowl Sunday. How many of you are Rams fans in here? Any LA Rams fans in here? Okay, we got one, two, two, maybe three Rams fans, four. Okay, we got a few Rams fans in here. How many of you would consider yourself to be Cincinnati fans in here? Okay, apparently not many of you care anything about this Super Bowl. None at all. But I am definitely a Cincinnati fan because of Joe Burrow from LSU, and uh, I'm pulling forward. How many, of you, how many of you are going to watch the Super Bowl? Just raise your hand. How many of you do not plan to watch the Super Bowl? Raise your hand. How many of you have never even watched the Super Bowl in your life? We got some. See, I looked at you today. So we got some. Okay, that's interesting. Now, what's interesting was I introduced these two teams, not only by a geographical place, but also by their mascots. And that all these teams have mascots. LA's the Rams, Cincinnati's the Bengals. And that is true, really, of all professional sports. It's true of college sports, high school sports, and even elementary sports. So I want to see how well you are identifying mascots with teams. Okay, so I'm going to throw a mascot out there. You tell me which team this mascot represents. Here's the first one. Ohio State. Somebody's really excited about Ohio State. A Buckeye. You got to be dangerous when a nut like that comes after you, you know. It's a Buckeye. Come on, it's a nut. And here is the mascot for Ohio State. How about this one? Can you identify who this is? Colorado State. That's right. Some of you know Colorado State. His name is Cam the Ram or Ram Cam, I don't know, whatever it is, but this is for Colorado State. Here's one that you would recognize. That's right, Bulldogs, national champions from this last year. And then from the year before that, 
Bulldogs, Alabama, Alabama. And then for you ACC fans, can you identify this one? Clemson, you're excited, but I want to tell you, look at his eyes. This is the most deranged looking tiger that I have ever seen in my life. Come on, get a new costume. This is a real tiger right here. Now we can go on and we can do this for hours and some of you really don't care about it. But, but all these teams have mascots that are connected with them to identify them. When you go through the pages of scripture, it's really interesting that you also find some creatures connected with individuals in the scriptures. And the two individuals that are the antithesis of one another both have these creatures attached to them. The first one is Satan. And Satan is called that ancient dragon of old. When you see the character of Satan, you see that he's a father of lies, he's the deceiver, he's the adversary, but we find that he is the ancient um, dragon. And this is a hideous looking creature. This is an intimidating creature. This is a creature that seems to bring fear into the minds of people's lives. But let me just say he is a defeated foe. He is already defeated. And Jesus Christ is going to defeat him with a single word from his mouth. And Jesus, the King of Kings, already has this creature defeated. So Satan, the dragon, is defeated by Christ. Now, when you think of Satan as a dragon, and you think, what is the image of Jesus in Scripture? Many times we think he's the Lion of Judah. You would be correct, but it is not the most often used image of Jesus. When you think of Jesus in scripture, the most often used image is a lamb. Is a lamb, a precious lamb. Now, when we look at this, we say, now, wait a minute. This doesn't really compute in my head. Here's this vicious, destructive dragon who is going to be destroyed by a lamb? Which is some creature that is so timid He's scared of his own shadow. He has no defense mechanisms at all. And this lamb is going to defeat the enemy of our soul. As we continue to study the book of John today, we're going to be introduced into the second portrait that we find of Jesus from John in his gospel. And that is that Jesus is a lamb. And we have to ask the question, how is this lamb going to defeat the enemy of our soul. And John lays it out beautifully for us. Now, last week we started the series, we entitled it Believe, because the key verse is what David read earlier, is that we would believe in the Son of God. And in believing in him, we would have eternal life. And last week we began the portrait where John began, and John began in eternity past. He went to eternity past where he tells us the first picture of Jesus is that he is God and he is man. And this is significant. If we miss it here, we will never understand the Jesus of the Bible. And this whole series is to help us to understand who Jesus is according to God's word. And it brings us past the temptations of the culture to create our own Jesuses. So here we're going to understand who is Jesus. And last week we saw from eternity past, he is God. But God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as one from the Father. And so he is both God 
and he is both man. He is the God-man. And because he's God, there's nothing he cannot do. There's nothing he does not know. Because he's man, there's nothing he hasn't experienced that you and I experience. But it doesn't stop there. John goes further. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 29. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. Now, before we jump there, let me catch up where we are. John just has introduced us to Jesus as God and man. And then immediately he moves us into the next part of his gospel. And he tells us about John the Baptist. And he begins by introducing us to John the Baptist. And he's going to introduce us to Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus are connected because they are related to one another. And this is how they're related. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 2, Mary is confronted by Gabriel the angel. And he says that you're going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and you're going to conceive and give birth to a son and his name will be Jesus. And then she, at the end of that conversation, the angel tells her that your relative Elizabeth is also pregnant and she is going to give birth and he's going to be a great prophet. That is John the Baptist. And so Jesus and John the Baptist are related John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus is. Now, here's what's interesting. There's nowhere in scripture where it tells us that they had met previously. They may have met as children, but they certainly wouldn't have remembered it because tradition says that John the Baptist was taken away from his family at a certain age. And tradition says he went and lived with a group of people called the Essenes in the wilderness near Qumran. And so John would have grown up in the wilderness being trained by the Essenes. And Jesus grows up in Nazareth. The two, if they ever met, they probably wouldn't know each other. And so here they are. They both are at the scene at the same time. John comes out of the wilderness. He's preaching with incredible power. He's not demonstrating any kind of powerful signs. He's just preaching. And thousands of people are showing up at the Jordan. He's baptizing them. And the Pharisees are curious. They're like, what's going on here? Who is this guy? So the Pharisees send their own little committee and their little committee go to investigate who John is. And they ask him the question, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I am not the Messiah. He says, well, well, are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah, even though he did come in the form of Elijah. Are you one of the prophets? I'm not a prophet. Then who are you? He says, I'm the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Now, here's what I love about John. God set him apart to be one of the greatest prophets that would ever be. And John is out there preaching about Jesus. And when people are asking him, his ministry is growing. He's becoming very popular. John was always careful to point everything back to Jesus. And that is so important. Because we're living in a culture today where I watch pastors growing in their significance, growing in their ministries, growing in their success, growing in their notoriety, and then something happens to these pastors. They become weird. They begin focusing on themselves. They focus on their own ministry, and they forget that they're simply a voice of Almighty God. And what we're seeing in our own culture are these celebrity pastors who are rising to a level where they become more worshipped than Jesus, and they make it about themselves other than about Jesus Christ. Amen. We are always to point to Jesus. And one of the goals of our pastors at Scotts Hill is it is never about us. 
It is always going to be about Jesus Christ. I remember several years ago, I had my own parking spot. I had, I had my name on the front of that sign out there. And one day while I was praying, the Holy Spirit just convicted me and said, it's not about you. It's about me. And so I took that parking spot away. I took my name off the sign. I parked way out in the grass and walked in here. I didn't wear a jacket this morning. My wife's not here. I dressed myself. And so, you know, I came. <laughs> but it's not about us. It's not about you either. It's always about Jesus. So we can learn from John. As he says, I must decrease, but he must increase. And so as we move in this, we see John's heart is always pointing about Jesus. And then Jesus shows up. John is preaching. He's out there on the edge of the Jordan. Thousands of people are coming. And it's the day after the Pharisees questioned him. In verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John understood the significance of Jesus. And then the next day, the same thing happens again. And what does John say? The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus and he walked as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this is pretty interesting because it says John would not have known him if the Spirit of God had not descended upon Jesus and stayed. John wouldn't have known him. Jesus was the most ordinary looking person that you and I would even imagine. But the Holy Spirit falls upon him. And what does John do? He says, the Lamb of God. Now, for you and me, that doesn't mean much. For you and me, when we hear people say the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, we don't get the connection. We think of the cute little lamb that was sitting on the rock earlier. But when the people heard the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, this was the image that they thought. A lamb bound, ready for sacrifice to die because of sin. Do you hear how serious this is? When John says, behold, the Lamb of God, the image that every person would have imagined immediately was a bloody sacrifice where something had to give its life. This is striking. This is a stark contrast of what we think of Jesus so often. Jesus did not come to earth so that you and I can just feel good about ourselves. Jesus didn't come to earth so that we can have a, a good feeling about us and God. Jesus did not come to earth to be a model for us by how we should live. Jesus did not come to earth so that we can have a successful, abundant life. It's not why he came. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of people who deserve to die in their own rebellion. That's what it means. Jesus came as an atonement for our sin. Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. The problem with our culture today is we don't believe we sin anymore. The problem with our culture today, there is no sin. And when you live in a culture where there's no sin, 
then you live in a culture where there's no need for a savior and there's no need for a sacrifice. But it doesn't change the purpose for why he came. He came to atone for our sin. Now, here's the thing. In our culture, we don't understand this. In that culture, there was a regular, daily, yearly offering for the sins of people. And the act kind of happened like this. They would bring a lamb that was an innocent, spotless lamb. They would lay their hands on the head of that lamb, transferring their sin to the lamb. And once they did that, the priest would grab that lamb by the throat and with a knife slit it. And all the blood would drain out. And that lamb died for their sin. But it was repeated year after year after year after year. And the picture is Jesus will be that for you and me. Amen. That's the picture. And so when you think of the Lamb of God, don't think of the little Easter lamb that we get that's so white and cuddly. You think of a lamb whose throat has been slit and the blood has been drained out and has died for our sin. That's the picture. So what we need to understand is what does the atonement mean? When we talk about the atoning work of Jesus, we need to understand deeply what that means because until we understand the deep meaning of the atonement, you and I will never appreciate him being our lamb for our sins. So here's what I want to do. We're going to kind of have a theological talk here but from a very practical point, and I'm afraid that our churches today are missing out on the deep theology of the word of God. And the reason so many churches are running after the culture's view of Jesus is because we don't even know what God's word says about it. So here's a very important message for every one of us. First of all, the concept. Let me give you the concept of the atonement. We need to understand what that means there's a general meaning and there's a specific meaning. The general sense is a sacrificial covering for sin or transgression. Atonement just means a covering, a sacrificial covering because of sin and transgression. Let me tell you what it isn't. It isn't just covering over something. This past week, my wife left for Atlanta on Friday. And when she left, I decided to do some, some honeydews around the house. I went through and I was going to repaint all the walls that had little nicks on it and work on the doors and stuff like that. So I did. And so I'm covering over all of these little spots, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, that'll work. And then I walk up and the paint doesn't really blend well and it still bleeds through and all of that stuff. Those of you, you know what I'm talking about. We're not just talking about this simple covering. It is something that comes with the shedding of blood. And in a specific sense, the work of Jesus the, the atonement is the work Jesus did in his life and death to purchase our salvation. The atonement isn't just about his death on the cross. It's also his life because he had to have a perfect life and he had to have a perfect death because every sacrifice had to be without spot or blemish before it was accepted before God. And Jesus lived perfect obedience before the Father. And he was the perfect sacrifice for us. That's basically the, uh, the concept of atonement. It's covering for sin through the shedding of blood. But here's the second thing we need to see. We need to see the case for atonement. Why do we need atonement? Well, we find that in Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse one. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. The scriptures are going to be on the screen. 
But I'm gonna give you several reasons why we need atonement. The first is this, because of sin. It's because of sin. We see this in Genesis chapter three, verse one. God created Adam and Eve. He gave them one commandment, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's what happens. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree would be desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They sinned against the goodness of God. Of all the things that they had in the garden to eat freely of, they rebelled against the king and they sinned willfully and disobediently before God. So there's sin. And the soul that sins, it must die. But not only is there sin, there's shame. Shame flows out of that. Notice what happens after this in verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave with me. She gave fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice the shame. They're hiding from God. And I want to tell you, ever since sin has come, we hide ourselves, don't we? We hide ourselves from God. We hide ourselves from one another. We like to show people that we're stronger than we really are. We're something that we're really not. And as a result of that, shame flows. But here's the third thing that comes out of that. There's separation. God removes them from the garden. If you would, just look at verses 22 and following. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man became like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now least he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground. God kicks him out of the garden because there's a separation. Now they can no longer be in the presence of a holy God. And here's the last thing. There is a substitutionary sacrifice. Look at verse 21. This is so significant. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God killed the first animals. God slayed two innocent creatures because of their sin, because of their shame, and because of their separation. God skint those animals and prepared a covering, an atonement that was temporary. And then from that point on, you know what we see in Scripture? Snapshots of Jesus in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 22, we find 
that Abraham was taking his son Isaac on Mount Moriah and was called to sacrifice him. Isaac asked, Father, where is the lamb? Abraham says the Lord will provide one, and he does. We see in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb, where the angel of death is passing over, and all those who had taken a little lamb into their home and cut its throat and put the blood on the doorpost would be passed over the wrath of God. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse seven, it says that he shall be led to the slaughter like a lamb. Even in Luke chapter two, this is fascinating. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem was known for? The preparation of sacrificial lambs for Passover. And you know how they prepared them? When those lambs gave, were born to keep them from injuring themselves, they would wrap them with swallowing cloths and they would put them in a manger so they would not damage themselves, so they would be the perfect sacrifice. You see what we see? There's the, call, the, the case for it. It's because of our sin that Jesus came as a lamb. Now let me give you the cause for it. This is phenomenal. Why? God didn't have to do this, did he? God could have wiped every one of us out but instead, God sends it because of his own love. God sends Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world because he loves us, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has so loved us that he sent the only person who could pay the price for our sin. It's his love, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that God loved you, God loved me, God loved us so much that rather than keeping him son to himself in the glories of heaven and the joy that they have experienced from eternity past, he said, go, be the lamb. Give yourself for those I've created. But it's not just love. No, the cause is also justice. We cannot forget this. Because God is a just God, he can't wink at sin. Because he's a just God, his wrath has to be appeased. His wrath is his eternal, fixed attitude towards sin. That will never, ever change. Regardless of the depth of your sin, whether it's a white lie or whether it's murder, sin has a price. And it must be paid for. And because of God's justice, Jesus Christ would be the one who would satisfy his wrath, would appease his wrath. And we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he is the propitiation. That big word propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of something. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. So when you come to the cross, here's the beautiful picture you see. You see a picture of God's love and God's justice. You see a picture of love and you see a picture of hate. That God so loved the world that he would send his son to die for us and he so hated sin that Jesus would pay the price for our sin and remove the wrath from us once and for all and forever. The cause of his love is so deep. Let me tell you this, this is not plan B. From eternity past, it has always been that Jesus would be the lamb of God. 
Just as he has never been a time where he was not God, there was never a time when he would not pay for our sins. And so from eternity past, there is the lamb. and eternity future, there will be the lamb. You know how many times we see the picture of the lamb of God in the Old Testament? Two times. And we see it twice in John. We see it once in Acts. We see it once in the epistles. But we see the lamb in heaven 28 times in the book of Revelation. Because he is and will always only be the answer for us. It's God's love. It's his justice. And because of that, God was willing to pay the severe price of his own son. But it gets even harder. Here's the third thing. The cost for Jesus' atonement. Have you ever thought about the cost for you? Have you ever thought about what he went through so that you can be free? that you can be forgiven. And here's what we forget in our culture. We like to think of Jesus as this little cute lamb. Oh, I just carry him with me. He's on my leash. You know, Mary had a little lamb everywhere she went. The lamb was sure to go. We love quoting that. But here's the picture we miss. It was the incredible cost that Jesus paid for us. Let me give you some of the costs. First is the cost of his perfect obedience for us. Jesus had to be perfect. He had to live a perfect life because the only way that you and I can have the righteousness of Jesus imputed into our lives is if Jesus was absolutely righteous. And 1 Corinthians tells, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He had to live a perfect life in every aspect of his obedience. But he also had a painful suffering for us. His suffering was unbelievably painful, more than you and I can ever imagine. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says, Jesus died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. What was his suffering like? Let me give you some of his suffering. First of all, there's suffering in his life. He was constantly ridiculed, constantly misjudged, constantly rejected. Constantly looked down upon. Constantly accused of breaking the law of God who was perfect. In every way, Jesus' life was a despising life for those who lived around him. He suffered through his whole life pursuing obedience. But secondly, on the cross. How did he suffer on the cross? If you know anything about the history of the cross, you would know how unimaginable the pain would be. Let me just give you a couple of those. First of all, there was a physical pain on the cross. First of all, he would have been beaten to a point of near death with a cat of nine tails, 39 lashes, which would have left his back just simply ribbons of flesh. And then he had to carry his own beam to the cross. And then he was nailed by the wrist where the median nerves are, which create the most excruciating pain known to man. And then his entire body would have been lifted up on that cross piece, hung on the top. His feet would have been nailed in such a way that the people who die on the cross die of asphyxiation because you can inhale, but you cannot exhale. And every time you exhale, you have to push up and it's the ripping of flesh. Unimaginable. The physical pain, we can't even imagine. The spiritual pain of bearing your sin. He who knew no sin, now every single sin of the world that you can imagine is on him. Adultery, murder, sexual immorality, 
thieving, lying, everything imaginable on him. Thirdly, abandonment. Abandonment. Remember last week I said that he was face to face with God. There was never a time where the Lord Jesus from eternity past was ever separate from his father. The first time he ever experienced that was on the cross for you and me where the father turned his back. And Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For you, for me. The one who had never, ever, ever been apart from his father who had never known what it'd be like to not to be in perfect fellowship all of a sudden on a cross with your sin, my sin, the sin of the world, and the father turns his back because he cannot look at what has been placed upon his own son for you and me. How about this? Bearing, the last one, which was bearing the wrath. Bearing the wrath of a holy God that the wrath of God fell on him all the wrath that you and I deserve fell on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the price. He did that for you. He did that for me. And let me tell you, sometimes we walk through our lives and we forget about the serious nature of what it means for the atonement and how deeply he loves you. And when we say that God doesn't understand us, when we shake our fist at him and blame him for the failure of our own lives, what we're doing is we're shaking our fist and we're questioning the very depths of the incredible love that God has for us who deserve no attention from him at all. That was the cost for Jesus. Now, here's the good news. And here's the application for us today the consequences of his atonement. Let me give you four consequences and we're gonna close with this. The four consequences, that's good news. Here's the first one. While we deserve to die for our sin, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is our sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. You and I deserve, but Jesus took our place. He's the substitute. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means this. Jesus did everything you and I need to be saved. I do not have to try to work out or work my salvation. I do not have to try to earn my salvation. I don't have to live my life in such a way that I'm trying to do everything right so that God would be accepting of my works. No, God never accepts your works. He accepts the work of Jesus on the cross for you. Amen. So you're free. You're free. You're free to walk in the grace of God you're free to not have to worry about all the time if you're ever going to make it to heaven. Now, if you're a child of God and you have submitted your life to Christ, there is nothing you need to do to earn salvation. There is a positional righteousness that comes from Jesus, but there is a practical righteousness that we are too. Because Jesus has saved me, I don't have to do these things, but because Jesus has saved me, I'm pursuing his righteousness and his holiness. Because while he worked salvation in, I am called to work salvation out into my life. You're free. Secondly, while we deserve to bear God's wrath, 
Jesus is our propitiation. As the Lamb of God, he's already satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. And if you're a child, if you're a son or daughter of God, then he has already paid the wrath for that. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 9, he says that we are not destined to wrath, but for salvation. That means this, whatever sins of your past are covered, whatever failures of your past no longer define you, the shame that you once felt, the guilt that you once felt is all covered by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus says this. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And because he has already satisfied the wrath of God as a child of God, you will never, ever, ever be cast aside because of a sin in the past or even in the future. I am with you always. It is settled in the blood of Jesus Christ. So you're free to live in his grace. Thirdly, while we were separated from God, Jesus is our reconciliation. He is the only one that can reconcile us to a holy God. There's nothing that we can do on ourselves, but he's already done it. And because he's reconciled us, he has not only wiped the slate clean, but he counts us as righteous. And not only that, he adopts us as his sons and his daughters. And now we're part of the family of God. And you will never be disowned as a child of God. You may disappoint the father's heart. You may grieve the father's heart, but you will never be removed from your heritage as a son or a daughter of God. He has reconciled you to himself and nothing can ever change that. Here's the last thing. While we were in bondage to sin, Jesus is our redemption. We were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to the kingdom of Satan and ultimately to hell. But when Jesus died on the cross for us, he redeemed us. That word redeem means to buy back. With his blood, he bought us and set us free. He's paid the ultimate price that no one else could ever pay. And as a result of that redemption, we are free. We're free from the kingdom of Satan. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're free from the addictions that he wants to use to keep us bound. We are free to walk into grace and the abundance of God. We're free to walk into his sonship or daughtership. And there's nothing that can ever keep us from what Jesus paid for us. Here's what's interesting. John says, behold the lamb. You know what that word means? It doesn't mean, hey, look at, look at the lamb. Is that what it means? When he says, behold, he says, look carefully. Look intently. And matter of fact, that word behold can be translated into a colloquial term in our own culture, which is wow. Wow, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow, there he is walking before us. And John's heart is that you and I would so believe that he is the Lamb of God that he so captures our hearts, our minds, our lives that every single day we walk in astonishment. We walk in mercy. We walk in thanksgiving. 
and praise and gratitude because of what he's done. Listen, child of God, child of God, he's done everything for you. Walk in that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you never considered the claims of Christ, listen to me. You can never earn your salvation. You can never do enough to pay off your debt. Jesus has already done that for you. And the, the God of this world wants to blind your eyes to the glory of the gospel to think that you can do it yourself or that you have no sin and you need no savior. And if you walk in the lies of the enemy, my friend, you're going to walk into an eternity separated from God under his full wrath. But God loves you so much and he has you here today to hear this message that if you would surrender to him, you would be free. There's nothing else to do. He's done it. He is the Lamb of God that takes away my sin. Your sin, your neighbor's sin, your co-worker's sin, the person in Africa's sin, those in China's sin, the sin of the world for those who believe. That's the freedom. May we never look at a lamb the same. May it stir our hearts to worship. And may even as we close this out this morning, that the Holy Spirit would so demonstrate in our own hearts how deeply Jesus loves us. I'm going to ask you right now if you would stand together. Would you stand? Stand. Every head bowed. If you're a believer here this morning, and you really believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, what are you holding on to that is enslaving you when Jesus has already set you free? Is it something from your past? Is it guilt? Is it shame? If you really believe that he is your Lamb, then let it go and walk in the abundance of his grace and his provision for you today. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, right now you can surrender your life to him. He is your lamb. The lamb of God that takes away your sin. He's personal. And today he desires for you to confess your sin, to repent of it, and to surrender your life to him right now. Right now. You can do that by just simply saying, Dear God, I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus is your lamb who has died, who was buried, and who rose again for me. And right now I surrender my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to give me eternal life in Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. 
If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.